From Central Source and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. Just now realizing how many S sounds in the intro. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm your host, Ryan Gore, and welcome to this very intimate episode of In Search of Source. Intimate <laughs> because I'm joined by and only by hey. managing editor of Central Source and freelancer OK player, Brian No. It's the it's the In Search of Source date night special. <laughs> Just the two of us. <laughs> uh, before we jump in, jump in. Please remind us to follow us on Twitter at central underscore source. As long as that thing chugs along, we'll be there. Um, <laughs> we don't have a Mastodon sorted, but <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, <laughs> and don't forget to rate and review wherever you can on whatever app that is possible to rate and review us on. Uh, we'd appreciate that greatly. It helps us grow. Uh, today's show, we have only two pieces because there are only two of us. We have a piece on touring, um, coming out of a uh, come out of Toronto specifically, but also kind of generally artist touring, and the cost of that, as well as um, how '90s alt rock radio and Woodstock '99 kind of brought to the surface the uh, targeting of white men when it comes to right wing media. But before we get there, we'll talk a bit about what we've been up to recently in terms of our writing. And a bit of what we've been listening to, as this is a music and journalism podcast. Uh, Vaguely, people might want to know uh, some stuff about how our careers are going. So, Brandon, what are your most recent journalistic developments? Absolutely. Um, the, the obvious one is I recently interviewed Michi Darko uh, for my first byline at Vinyl Me Please magazine. We talked about his new album, Gothic Luxury, um, and a lot about the law of attraction. And this was sort of like a a really exciting interview for me because I've been, you know, like like I I sort of like to sort things into like you know there are kind of pivotal moments in your music taste and you can kind of group them and like an early one for me was like Kid Cudi Mac Miller and then like a second one for me was like Flatbush Zombies Earth Gang Underachievers sort of like that like group psychedelic rap kind of space um, <clears throat> so I've been listening to Flatbush Zombies since. 2014 or something like that 2013 probably so long time coming on 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 this interview and one i was like really excited to do and we really just got to like shoot the shit about the law of attraction which he talks a lot about on his album and how you know energy is like returned to you whether intentionally or unintentionally um and sort of like paralleled that to like psychedelic use and stuff like that uh really interesting conversation really interesting album fun to write about um yeah, check that out on Vinyl Me Please magazine for sure. Yeah, super proud of you for that one. Um, such a big get. I know how much like his music means to you. So, yeah, congrats on keeping your composure. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah, really good stuff. Um, for me, in terms of like stuff that's out, <laughs> um, my newsletter is going off because I have random um, surges of energy to write some every now and again and I just do a piece and my latest one is like a little series I started called in the world of where I pluck like a show a movie a book a game 
a song, an album from the Zeitgeist, and kind of link its themes to media in other kinds of media. So for this one, I took the themes of the new Star Wars show, Andor, and linked it to a Tracy Chapman song and the game Inside in terms of its themes and the things that it's exploring. Um, yeah, so I, the point is really to show like how art is kind of universal and how the same things can be explored in completely different ways and completely different mediums. And also to just put games on the same level as books just makes mm. me happy because people still can't get it through their brains that, you know, games are worthy of that um but yeah another thing that um has become very very thankfully and very very luckily a part of my life is that i get to attend like screenings for films now which is just like one of my favorite things that's happened to me this year um it's just an incredible privilege but one thing that i've been noticing a lot of them first of all they're only ever held in london which is just like a terrible thing that like just locks out so many journalists around the country but also just the whiteness of all these events and i know this isn't like an actual thing or written or anything but it's a link to journalism i know it's film journalism mm-hmm. but it's still um and it really wakes woke me up to like how white film journalism is in the uk especially for the events held in london i know i've talked about it a bit on twitter a bit like in group chats or whatever but i want to put it here as well that is it's like really fascinating to me that you're in London of all places, you know, a very, very, very diverse place, but you're still managing to lock black and brown people out of your events. It's, uh, it's a horrific look. Um, so I kind of make it a point often like being the only white, uh, non-white person in the room for these things, just pointing out and just trying to shame this industry into just changing because, I don't know, man, I've already been here a few months and it's not looking good, bruv. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I can't be thinking about like how I don't really know what the U- the um, music journalism side of that's like. Because for film journalism, screening is kind of just part of the process, you know? Right. Like part of the trade of film journalism is going out to screenings and inevitably being in the room with other journalists. With music, is there an th- equivalent? Concerts aren't really an equivalent, right? Because yeah, they're not just. I mean, there's there are some like pre-release parties. Like I've I've gotten a few invites to like mm. a like an like early listening sessions and stuff like that. And I think it might have been a little bit different of a case too pre-COVID. Like it was probably more popular, but I think music journalism lends itself more to like a digitally focused kind of remote workspace mm. than what film journalism would. Which is, I mean, kind of sad in a lot of ways, you know, like that community building aspect of like in-person events um, <clears throat> is definitely something that misses, you know, from when it comes to networking and things like that, for sure. Yeah, I think like friends in the industry, it's just so valuable, not even like in terms of getting opportunities, but just support, like just for you, like. I know when I'm writing a piece, I can just shoot it off to you for any advice, any edits, anything like that, just to make it better. And, you know, um, for journalists, you just don't have that because it's just all online, which, again, you can network, but it's not quite the same as just being like, oh, I've met this person in person, like, I know them. I feel comfortable enough, you know, to just say, hey, what do you think of this, like, as a casual thing. Um, so, yeah. Uh, that's that's what I've been kind of 
marinating on recently and hopefully in the next few weeks um i should have stuff actually dropping to talk about um i have a disney i have a um interview with a producer at disney called roy roy conley coming out soon because the movie strange world comes out on wednesday so uh squiggly should drop that as a podcast soon we talked about kingdom hearts a little because he worked on kingdom hearts 3 or yeah 3 um so that was cool and yeah just a couple other little bits that should be coming your way soon how about you brandon what's on the horizon yeah um yeah i'm i'm i'm, I'm glad you asked because i was actually gonna i was gonna see if you wanted to talk a little bit about that that piece of yours i just edited not too long ago um because <clears throat> i have an upcoming piece as well that's actually relevant to one of the topics we're going to discuss today. Um, I've been reporting on the way that white, young white boys specifically are radicalized on the internet. Um, it has a lot to do with like incel spaces, uh, right-wing influencers, and um, specifically misogyny and how misogyny is like the most accessible entry point for radicalization um, and the way that like these right-wing influencers and these like really toxic spaces specifically like use language and use you know recruiting tactics that that target like young men in particularly like vulnerable phases um which is relevant to the second piece we're going to discuss today because it talks about how um right-wing influencers and like alt-rock radios in the 90s specifically like what kind of what happens when you look at like um the profitability of targeting the lar- like one of the largest homogenous demographics in the U.S., which is white men, um, and what sort of happens when you specifically skew like, okay, how can we make money the easiest way possible by targeting the largest homogenous demographic, right? And 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 sort of the nightmares that come along with that, because nightmares is the right word for it. Um, with the reporting I've been doing on this topic for the last couple of weeks, it's definitely the most like depressing thing I've ever covered. Um, and one of the most seemingly like how the, how the hell do we get out of this kind of situation things, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I guess look forward to that piece is not the right, (laughs) (laughs) not the right way to put it, but like there will be a piece, um, it will have information inside of it. If you are curious about learning more about the topic (laughs) and if you don't want to (laughs) miss, if you don't want to miss the piece, cause why would you? Uh, subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, it's free weekly newsletter. You can find it in my link in my bio on Twitter if that thing still exists. Uh, at Hoopla Hill. Yeah, and I don't think I actually said the name. My my newsletter is um, called postmaustrum.substack.com. Check that out. And yeah, I know like it's a difficult thing to say. Hey, look forward to my piece yeah. about the darkest thing going on in our society. It's awful. But I wish, I wish you didn't have to read it. I wish I didn't have to write it. Genuinely, like a horrible experience. <laughs> but it's an important document. Like someone has to do that right someone has to make the document yeah. and someone just has to uh, what not just one person but all of us just have to keep pushing and just keep bringing to light these things that are happening and how people are taken advantage of um we'll get more into it later on obviously with that piece but um yeah yeah absolutely uh a very awkward <laughs> position to be in <laughs> and i could say the same thing about my piece coming up about like fascism and how that's riding rising up yeah but you society. made you made fascism fun though you made it fun <laughs> <with your piece. laughs> oh no oh no <laughs> like, that's i buy like influence people 
people are going to read my piece and be like, hang on a second, this fascism thing doesn't sound so, doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I was talking about a couple of movies that are very much anti-fascist. And um, I think that's where the fun comes into it, that it's, it's film analysis, but um, also like the, the political kind of commentary um, that, again, talks about how we are sliding towards a very, very dark future. Uh, <laughs> that's but, what, I mean, that's um, one of the things I've always liked about like arts and culture and like entertainment kind of reporting is that you can, it seems like you can make very like depressing, horrible topics a lot more accessible and a lot lighter by looking at them through the lenses of like entertainment, like arts and culture, which obviously like by definition touches on all of these topics, uh, sometimes more overtly than others. But like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a little more accessible and digestible than like, you know, a straight featured news report, like what I've been working on, which is like sentence Mm -hmm. after sentence of just like horrible, horrible, depressing information. Yeah. I mean, there's no shame in learning about these things through a film. Or, like, if you watch, like, um, the new Pinocchio movie from Guillermo del Toro, and that's, like, your first exposure to what it was like to live in under Mussolini's Italy, then fair enough, like, the movie's done its job, in fairness. Like, there'll be some snobs who are like, you didn't learn this when you were six or whatever. Mm. Yeah, you know, you didn't read it from, a like, a, a, a non-fiction book. You had to watch a stop-motion movie to do it. That, that's fine. Like, it, <laughs> like that's kind of the purpose of a lot of, the, of, a lot of these things, is, is to teach people. So, um, yeah, by extension, the journalism about those things kind of um, carries that, um, not lightheartedness, but um, the presentation is a bit less, what's the word, you know, the the barrier to entry is a bit lower Mm. in terms of the presentation. Um, But yeah, we should get on with the show. What do you think? Sure, sure. We had had time to kill today in in our little... 15 minute coffee hour before we jump into it i guess classic classic podcast stuff yeah exactly <laughs> just waffling from straight men on, on, on microphones um, <laughs> the, the people the want experience. the banter they want the banter <laughs> exactly uh okay so let's jump into the main part of our show today and the first piece is mine r.i.p my vocal cords okay (laughs) so uh this piece is called musicians like me can no longer afford to tour live music won't survive unless the industry changes and this is by roly pemberton but for toronto life so uh yeah don't we just love reading about the recession right now Mm. um but no seriously it's a really important thing and i know like over the last couple of years since the pandemic started, um, a lot of the pieces we brought to in search of source have been kind of in this ballpark of essentially how are artists going to survive this? How is streaming still like this in a pandemic? How can touring still happen in a pandemic? How can they make money in a pandemic? Um, but that's an important thing. It's about the survival of musicians and the indie music industry. And everyone who contributes to this podcast loves indie music you know i don't think there's a single person on central source who like isn't who's just like a pure billboard spectator you know um so it's important to us and i think it's important to the health of the industry in general um and i think there's this feeling of that like artists who survived the worst of covid worst of those pandemic restrictions 
would soon be able to make their living again once restrictions lifted. But instead, once things quote unquote opened up again, um, what we've seen is like the cost of touring kind of being brought up to the surface instead. Because if you look at a couple of years of artists or a year or so of artists just not making as much money as they would before, uh, those costs are an even bigger burden. They've always existed, of course, and like indie artists have always had trouble tour making big tours, obviously. But um, since the pandemic, that 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 cost is just a bigger, yeah, like I said, a bigger burden. Um, so the value of this piece actually comes from Pemberton's own experience as an artist himself, and him outlining kind of how much he had to pay out of pocket to make his uh, last tour a reality. So I've got a quote here, just a little paragraph. Um, I sold my merch every night, coordinated with the production team and the promoter at every venue, and did my own press. I paid for the rental van, food, gas, flights, hotels, my phone bill, and a $261.65 PCR test to get back into Canada. I also shelled out for a social media marketing campaign and facebook ads to promote the shows my overall expenses for a relatively bare bones tour was twenty one thousand one hundred and sixty one dollars and sixty eight cents unquote uh he goes on to say that even with all that work put in and while representing uh, managerially representing himself that still ended in a over two thousand dollar loss so this thing that we saw as, oh, this is how artists make money, by touring. Uh, streaming is bad, people aren't buying music, but at least people are paying out of pocket to watch them at their shows. To be there, to do that tour, he actually lost $2,000. Which is just, if that's not a wake-up call to how fundamentally broken this entire system is, I have no idea what is. The risk just isn't worth it, especially post-pandemic now, where a single COVID case tanks a tour. Not just tanking a show, tanks a tour. Because that's, what, at least seven days isolation. That's a bunch of dates just crossed off that you've or, or most likely already uh, paid for transport there, already paid for just a bunch of things to get that thing promoted, get that thing off the ground, just completely gone. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's a real kind of it adds context to a lot of think what we've been hearing about as music fans. Um, we've been hearing about how artists just can't afford to do this, but this minute breakdown of why that is and just the fundamental struggle and the fundamental changes that need to happen for it to improve. It, yeah, it's really valuable. So yeah, what do you think of this one, Brandon? Yeah, I think I think that um, context is definitely like what this piece adds to the conversation. I think a lot of this this conversation around like the losses in the industry and the way that indie artists are suffering has been sort of painted in broad strokes because that's one of the most easy and accessible ways to like look at something that's super data heavy, right? Um, at least in my in my experience as well. Actually, I wrote. Uh, listeners are probably familiar. I talked about it on a previous podcast, but I actually wrote for OK Player recently, uh, a piece that looked at the way that the indie artist economy is suffering um, and how a some kind of guaranteed income program might be like a way to sort of limit some of that suffering. 
And in that piece, you know, obviously we I looked at when broad strokes at the way that the indie artist economy has just absolutely tanked. Um, and a lot of times, you know, when we talk about it, we look at large indie acts that are seen as like widely successful and hugely loved, like Santi Gold, Little Sims, Animal Collective, um, all these acts that have had to cancel their tours, right? And these are large, you know, award-winning, uh, extremely popular acts. And if they aren't able to make these profitable, you know, what does that say about like indie artists who are, you know, even in the smaller ground? Um, and <clears throat> so this piece coming in like an essay format where you really get that firsthand breakdown of like one, uh, you know, really zoomed in instance, one really zoomed in example of like how this actually functions financially and you're not looking at it from a distance of like just the large numbers is really like the highlight of this piece. And you read like the meat of it is really in that like numbers breakdown the, from the quote that you read. But I also want to point out that even like after that paragraph, the very next sentence says a tour like the one I did last fall wouldn't be feasible today. Right. So even even like this example of of having lost two thousand dollars, which I also want to point out when you said bare bones, this is like absolutely bare bones, you know, mm -hmm. um, self-managing himself, like doing his own merch, you know, doing his own, you know, not hiring like excess musicians like it, it, the description is like this is, you know, this is the bare bones. That you can even do a tour um, and twenty one thousand dollars sounds like, you know, compared to prices you see quoted for like tour expenses, twenty one thousand dollars seems very, very small. And yet you're still turning a loss of two thousand dollars. Right. So that's really like the the important context to get from this piece is really that like firsthand experience and breakdown. And then even the look at like, I, I can't do this again, right? Because it's even worse now, uh, which which speaks to like the way, you know, you mentioned with the pandemic, like the way that whenever there's a recession like this, I mean, you look at like real estate is always one of the most obvious examples Whenever there's a recession and, and, and people are like economically suffering, the places where the money is concentrated, the large corporations, the very wealthy individuals, um, they're the ones who are always going to like reap the benefits from these things. And now the piece mentions how like with the next year coming around with like large tours from who they mentioned, Taylor Swift, Rihanna. Is it Beyonce in there too? Yeah, yeah, I think so. They, like these several large acts, uh, Blink-182, you know, where these ticket resales are going for $5,000 or even – that's obviously an extreme example. But like even a ticket resale for you want to go see your favorite act for like 300 bucks, if you drop $300 on a ticket, you're not really shelling out money the rest of the year. Um, that kind of like is your show budget, you know, as a as a consumer. And that's going to just continue to suffer these indie artists, right? Like if these – tickets are expensive if venues are not accessible if tours are constantly getting canceled um where you know where does that leave the consumer to spend their money and it's likely more likely than not going to continue funneling the money upwards rather funneling the money spread out uh to the large amount of indie artists who are you know trying to make a living off of this yeah yeah absolutely i think <laughs> mickey would curse if we didn't say his line which i don't know why it's his line <laughs> I know he said it probably the most, but I think it's something we all agree on. You know, eradicate capitalism and we'll be fine. But um, we see it right there, right? With the prices of those higher level tours and um, how, yeah, like Charlie just said in the chat, um, 
most of the shows he hits are under 50. And I try to keep that as a rule as well. My exception was Kendrick, which was like 70s. And that's the most I think I'd ever pay. Because first of all, the artists that I'm interested in just probably aren't going above that. Um, but yeah, it's... it's uh, but even like, you know, thing to say. Go on. Even, even the spaces where those kind of shows happen are starting to disappear, right? There's, um, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm located here in Boston for the listeners who didn't know. And there's uh, the only ticketed venue in Boston that regularly featured local hip hop just closed down, right? There's now no longer anywhere in the city where if you are like a local hip hop act that you can get a show at a ticketed venue. It doesn't happen. Uh, which which is actually one of the things that the the author of this piece brings up. Yeah, is he sort of uh... yeah he sort of unfolds these like solutions kind of at the end, and one of them is that uh, you know an increase in like community based pop up shows that aren't like at, hosted at like traditional venues, um, and how like that kind of shifts the dynamic away from from venues that are doing it for profiting off of alcohol sales into like mm-hmm. the fact that there is a community that loves this thing and wants to make it survive and will do so whether or not there's like massive profit incentive behind it. Yeah. I thought that was a really interesting point. Not something I'd really considered, um, but you brought kind of up this, this local angle to it and it would be remiss not to mention that this is a piece from Toronto life and it is like a local, a localized kind of piece. Um, and I think another great thing about the piece is how it's able to be specific about the city, but also comment on something that I think, like our conversation so far, we didn't even consider, oh, this is a piece about the Toronto music scene. You know, this is just a piece about the music scene. Maybe it's so just like, what a bad place we're in that such negative things are universal. But it also takes skill to be able to, you know, make something that appeals to what a lot of people are going through outside your city but also kind of at the end of the piece um talk about kind of these local places shutting down these mid-level venues shutting down and the way he kind of frames it and the thing that it really evoked for me was the idea of him kind of um fighting for like the cultural soul of toronto just to keep art alive in the city um because it's true like arts and culture is just disappearing from so many places these these venues where these houses where art is allowed to actually exist they're just being gutted i mean in the uk we've seen a lot of film um um like what do you even call them um institutes shut down there's a big i wish i could remember the name there's a big like indie um film place in Scotland where they host a lot of festivals that recently shut down. Uh, hopefully Charlie can give me an assist there. Look at that. that. Wow, so fast. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's not the one. That's not the one. But even Cineworld, like, going to bankruptcy. We've had the light cinema in uh, Wolverhampton, which is fairly local to me, be shut down recently. Um, In general, arts are just... uh, What's the word? Treading water? Is that what it is? Is that the phrase? Treading water? Yeah. Yeah, that works. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, so, like, this this plea he has at the end for Toronto to kind of keep its cultural soul, it's something that we can all relate to 
as people who keep track of this stuff, it's like, man, what do I do if O2 Institute just shuts down? Where are like the mm. indie artists gonna play? Yeah, it's it's because those are the artists that I want to see. If we're gonna see anyone, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Um, anything else on this piece, Brandon? It's I mean it's well it's very well written like especially in in brevity like in in mm. sort of like the quickness um, that's like definitely a something to shout out kind of how difficult it is especially when you're writing first person you know when you're sort of given the space to oh, be be essayist it's very easy to go long um, this reads a lot like a very factual news report. Um, even though it is like a first person sort of like essay exploration. And I guess the one thing I wanted to point out, if I don't know if you have anything else to hit on before we go, but um, go on to the next piece, but I I want to read sort of the last paragraph, which actually like points out, um, you know, what can music fans do to help? Cause I think that that's, you know, we talked about how the, the writer points out these like possible different directions that things can head it's always good to be sort of like solutions journalism focused rather than like doom and gloom all the time. Uh, so we would be remiss to not like, you know, echo that by pointing out the, the advice that's given at the end for how music fans can help with this. Did, I mean, did you have anything else you wanted to touch on or should I just hit this last paragraph? Go for it. Yeah. So it reads, uh, what can music fans do to help? If you see that your favorite artist is coming to town buy a presale ticket early, it sends a signal to promoters, venues, and booking agencies that the show should go ahead as planned buy music directly from artists at shows from their Bandcamp pages or from their websites. Most importantly, don't get upset or take it personally as some fans do online when an act cancels a show. There's probably a lot more struggle behind their decision than you realize. And that has got to be like how like getting angry at an artist for like canceling a show is got to be one of the most like, I don't know, kind of entitled things to like it's so self-centric right like you think that that <laughs> you that you not getting to see that show is 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 a bigger deal than that artist like losing their income which is yeah like yeah people on the internet don't know how to separate them being disappointed from like someone having done something wrong like someone right. needs to be blamed for this like right and if you want to and if you want to blame <laughs> somebody but- if you want to blame somebody, like, let's be more conscious where you point the finger. Like, take, like, exactly. what, what, what was the tweet? Like, the Ticketmaster is giving the Swifties class consciousness or something. Like, yeah, like, <laughs> like learn, you know, learn where to point the finger. Don't be mad. Don't be mad at the act. Like, let's, let's figure out actually, like, who is to blame for your suffering, which in this case is, like, who is to blame for you missing out on being able to see one of your favorite acts. Because it's not the act I mean, who wants to make money from bringing you that show. It's right. it's the larger system of this whole economic recession and the way that money is constantly funneled upwards into less and less hands. That's the thing, like, with outrage, is that outrage is short, and it's just an instant, oh, I need someone to blame you. It's not a prolonged kind of... Hey, something's gone wrong. Let me think about this for a second. This is not the way people work, and it's sad. It's just so sad that all we get is just like a few hours of the artist being berated, and then no thoughts, no critical thinking beyond that point. 
Um, I've just received word from our research intern, intern Charlie Taylor, uh, that um, <laughs> what I was talking about earlier about um, in Scotland is that the Centre for Moving Image, which is the parent charity of the Edinburgh Film Festival, Edinburgh Film House, and the Belmont Film House in Aberdeen, has gone to in, uh, administration, which is just like I saw just an outpouring of love on Twitter when that happened, and just the people mourning it because it's so vital for the indie music scene in the UK in general. Um, but yeah, so to wrap up that piece, that was musicians like me can no longer to afford can no longer afford to tour. Live music won't survive unless the industry changes. By Roly Pemberton for Toronto Life, great piece. Thank you so much for that uh, for that conversation. So let's move on to the big one. <laughs> Something Brandon has wanted to talk about on the podcast for so long. Brandon, take it away. Absolutely. So this piece is titled What 90s Alt-Rock Radio, Woodstock 99, and the Telecom Act Have to Do with Contemporary Right-Wing Media by Robin James in It's Her Factory, uh, which it's it's worth pointing out that It's Her Factory, sort of like their subtitle here, which is the... Uh, the content that you'll find on the site is philosophy, pop music, sound studies, feminism, which are all present in this article. I guess it's a good sampling. And my my intro question here, which I guess is redundant now that I've read the title. I had this like separate from the title. <laughs> but Ryan, I was, I was going to ask you, what does Woodstock 99, Greek yogurt, and Joe Rogan have in common? Misogyny. <laughs> <laughs> which is crazy, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, first of all, like this article is, I, I appreciate how at the same time that it's like very dense, very concept heavy, um, very like high concept heavy too. There's sort of some, like some complex ideas flowing through here and they come very quick. Um, it's also similarly like sort of essay language. It's not necessarily first person, but it's like sort of in a borderline between like news report and media critique and like an academic kind of paper. But at the same time, you also get these very like, like you you get, you know, a few sentences in a row of these like conceptual kind of things that you have to kind of go back and read again and take one at a time to really track. Um, But then there are also like several sentences throughout the piece that you can point to and be like, oh, that's like the core concept, right? Very bluntly put um, in single sentences. And one of the first things I want to talk about is the the concept of deregulation as it's discussed in this piece. And Ryan, you're going to laugh here, but I'm... I'm actually going to draw a parallel between this story and Hollow Knight. Um, James, the journalist here, talks about deregulation in a similar way that Hollow Knight talks about authoritarianism, in that deregulation does not mean freedom. Uh, Deregulation is the freedom to oppress others for your own benefit, which entrenches the hierarchical power structure that feminism is all about dismantling, which is important here as this piece discusses primarily like misogyny and the mechanics of misogyny. So James talks about how the organizers of Woodstock 99 expected the festival to reflect the peace and love vibes of the original Woodstock, uh, but failed to see how the pursuit of profit and the structure of the festival that resulted from that was already inherently against the peace and love ideology. So where the original Woodstock uh, fed attendees through community kitchens, Woodstock 99 privatized food and water out to contractors who set their own prices and did shit like jack up the cost of water as surprise supplies ran low across the festival not a very peace peace and love kind of vibe that you're you're building into the structure here right 
So James then applies that principle beyond Woodstock uh, to the alt-rock radio stations that fed the music and culture at the time of the festival. And the main takeaway lesson here is not to create a product or service that is narrowly and exclusively marketed to white men. In the U.S., white men are the largest like homogenous market. But when they're marketed to, the marketing usually consists of buy this thing because it's not this, right? It's not feminine. It's not foreign. It's not homosexual. It's anti all of those things that you don't like. It's anti those things that you feel are encroaching on your identity. And Woodstock 99 was an outpouring of a lot of anger among this like homogenous demographic. And one of the things I've learned from doing my own reporting on the online radicalization of white men that I kind of talked about earlier is that kind of broad racially organized anger comes from entitlement, right? It's, it's, it's inherent to it. It comes from the belief that something is being taken from you. And James points out that the most insightful acts at Woodstock 99 directed that rage at boy bands like NSYNC or at MTV for platforming them. Uh, the festival, the bands, the alt-rock radio stations, they all tried to monetize basically off the concept that we see that this thing is being taken away from you and you're right, you're under attack, come over here where we're not that, we're the opposite of that. And directly from the essay, they quote this advertisement for Greek yogurt, um, which is this specific Greek yogurt that's like marketed to men. And the quote here from the marketing is, in a niche typically dominated by female consumers, we decided to develop a new Greek yogurt specifically suited to address the unique health and nutrition needs of the most neglected consumers in the category, men. The product's website reads, the language of most neglected consumers, men, echoes the red pilly claim that white men are the most disadvantaged group in today's so-called woke society. And it's not true. You know, it's a grift. Obviously, it's profit motivated. And that's where the article connects this late 90s period to modern misogyny. Uh, in the way that the same grift is used by right-wing influencers like Joe Rogan, Alex Jones, Ben Shapiro. Uh, the list could go on. Several of them are mentioned by name in this article, but, I mean, you could go on forever naming the influencers. Their goal being to appeal to the large, homogenous market of white men by being anti-everything else and feeding into the belief that the group is under attack by these outside forces that really want to dissolve their culture or identity. So what do you think? <laughs> it's a lot um uh at the start you talked about how like it kind of toes the line between um an academic essay and a piece of um music journalism which um yeah i absolutely agree and that's definitely the first thing that jumped out to me just on that structural level it did feel like i was reading an abstract and then it did feel like i was uh being presented findings which is a great thing to be able to First of all, shout out to Robin to get that commissioned. Like, <laughs> I think uh, a big fear for us, like if, uh, with game pieces out there, it's like, is this too much? Am I doing too much here? So this is kind of like a, a power fantasy for us to see. Like, oh, she just went all the way with it, and it's mm -hmm. great, and it's and it's so important, and it's brilliant. Um, but as I was reading it, it didn't. It stopped feeling like that. It stopped feeling academic, and just started feeling like a really good article um that i would that we'd read in any other podcast because it didn't feel as long as it is i just put it in google docs it's six thousand word piece which um sounds daunting wow. yeah it didn't yeah. does not it, feel that does not feel like that that long not at all right and i think it's because like 
how when does time pass quickly? Does time pass quickly when lots of things are happening, or does time pass quickly when nothing's happening? Time passes quickly when there's always something happening, right? There's always in this piece. There's always something being introduced to you, and always a connection you're making. Even if I had to read some stuff twice just to really make sure,、yeah. you know, I was getting what was being said. It never felt like a chore to read this piece、um, because it was just a fascinating thing to mull over, and I think <laughs> it does make you just take a thinking break every now and again to be like, "Oh wow, that's a really fascinating connection." Just like the Greek yogurt and、um, the, you know, the、um, yeah, the targeting of men through the music. It's a really fascinating connection, but the way that language carries across, and the way you pointed out, Brandon, it's about、uh, convincing them that this idea that like something has been taken from you, and you、mm-hmm. need to get it back by buying our products. You know, it's、uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fascinating, and、um, yeah, I think that's the main thing that hit me. Is like, oh man, this got made, and I'm so happy this got made. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny too because of how like. How efficient that marketing is, because I had to laugh about the Greek yogurt bit, because I literally like I have a smoothie for breakfast like almost every day. That's kind of my thing, and like dead ass like the Greek yogurt I would buy at the store is the one that's marketed like it doesn't look like the other yogurts. It's the big one and it's labeled like twenty five grams protein. You know, like it doesn't literally <laughs> Brandon, say on we're it. Losing you. It's like it's like we're losing you. It's、Brandon. like the whole the whole advertising thing is almost like it's screaming at you like this is not your mom's Greek yogurt, right? Like, <laughs> but and it, and it's, and it's the, the mechanic of like using the Woodstock ninety nine and alt rock radio like as a. As a lens to look at, like, because how how would you draw the connection between those things? Looking at, like, you know, the late nineties Woodstock ninety nine, this space, <laughs> our our、uh, our research intern just just coined the term Sigma smoothie, <laughs> but it's like looking at looking at this like late nineties decade, like the Woodstock ninety nine, and this and this even like the economic level of this nineties alt rock radio. And then using it to draw a parallel to like the Joe Rogan podcast, or、um, you know, like Ben Shapiro's Ben Shapiro's thing, or、um, I don't think she mentions Ben Shapiro, but that's obviously relevant. I think it's Alex Jones who's mentioned specifically. It's Alex Jones, yeah, yeah. But using using this like parallel between these things, talking about the marketing tactic and talking about how it, f- it fuels this idea of like you know, like it, the Greek yogurt doesn't have to say. You as a white man are being replaced, right? But that's what the marketing tactic implies, and that's the culture that it feeds into.、Um, with specifically the rage brought up at like Woodstock '99 is in this period where like MTV, which is this thing that like a lot of the people who are in this demographic and in this age have kind of grown up with watching. Well, MTV at this time is like making a pivot to like in sync, the boy bands,、um, <clears throat> music that's more in line with like. Femininity, I think is. I don't even know if that's a word, but femme, I think, is the term that's used.、Um, and it's yeah, these so things. Like, a lot of their fans are femme, like have a femme、yeah. kind of fan base. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's this thing where, in this way, where these people think that like that switch over is taking something from them, right? Like bringing more people in, like bringing more diversity and bringing more.、Um, there's a perfect term for this that's skipping me. Bringing more,、um, not acceptance. 
not diversity, but bringing, being more inclusive, right? That being more inclusive is, is excluding them, right? Mm-hmm. Th- and that's where like the entitlement to rage comes from. Uh, the story I've been reporting on, which is like the online misogyny radicalization, like when you, when you look at like the, it's, it's in like the incel spheres. And when you look at like the whole incel ideology thing is like, I'm mad at women for not sleeping with me. That comes from an entitlement that you feel entitled to sex. So you have a right to be angry that it's denied from you. And in the same way, like the, the, the space here feels an entitlement that catering to white men should be the predominant sphere, right? And so when you take away like not catering to them, because they feel entitled to that, taking that, like that is an attack, right? And this whole, this whole like marketing feeds that ideology in a really dangerous way while also, you know, again, funneling money into the hands of right-wing influencers who are like propagating this, this kind of theory. Yeah, like it really brings to light um, how much of like just advertising the way things are marketed and just society in general is kind of catered to protecting white male fragility, you know? So like uh, there's like a tweet that went viral a few years ago that was like, why are are women's perfumes named after actual things, but men's aftershaves are named after concepts like cool breeze and metallic, whatever, like, you know, (laughs) just kind of like how things that appeal to men have to sound like, oh, I can't be Apple. It has to be, you know, (laughs) some ephemeral, you know, kind of powerful thing you know um it got me thinking of a tweet i saw the other day from a football journalist called tim stillman and he talked about cristiano ronaldo is like the in basically an incel icon um (laughs) you know like he his image is based around like this idea of oh he's a big muscly man his work whose success is based on the hard work and he put paved his own way you know how like the things that are generally male dominated things are all only exist to just protect how fragile they are think about how like when you Mm. think of the word gamer you think of just some white kid right you think of some some white male because games are associated with like call of duties uh you know military fantasies those kind of uh, power fantasies that exist to kind of that are violent and that that like feeds into what the old 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 rock music kind of type feeded into too was like the desire to break something that's not yours. Yeah, like, and the enti- the entitlement that's that. involved in that too, right? Like yeah. exactly, yeah, yeah, and it, I mean, and it's also worth like maintaining or pointing out again, like the the profit motive behind it, right? And that's one of the things about Woodstock 99 that translates so well when looking at this one incident is it's not like, you know, it talks about like the people who set out to organize the festival had nothing but good intentions. They just failed to see the connection between catering to that sort of marketing and the, like the cultural, like status of that thing, right? Like they 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 failed to see how like, setting up an entirely profit motivated festival inherently like separates it from the original Woodstock in ideology. 
you can't replicate the ideology and also like make it super hyper capitalist because that is like the reason why the first thing was successful and had that kind of spirit is because it was like anti those aspects. So you can't just like have your cake and eat it too, right? This whole whole sphere, you know, kind of restructures that culture based on like the desire to profit off of that homogenous base. Mm. Yeah, I wish you'd wrote that down, Brandon, so I could actually read it like three times. (laughs) 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 I really get what you're saying. I feel like this conversation, obviously, yeah, again, to the the length of this piece, I came out of it thinking, oh, that was a a really great 2,000-word piece, but I wish there was more to kind of (laughs) really flesh this thing out and seeing it be 6,000 words and still feel like, oh, man, there's so much more to chew on here. There's so much more to Mm -hmm. kind of go deeper and explore. I do want the full academic um, essay on this. You know, I do want that full experience because, man, it doesn't stop. Like, it's an endless barrel of... Um, I didn't even know what <laughs> pandering. Yeah, and to... and with with credit yeah. to the quality of the writing too, like you never feel like the the writer is like reeling things back or trying to like oversimplify things to reach the most accessible audience. Like this is very like no punches pulled. It is a writer given the space to be like these are the things I want to talk about. These are the things I want to say, and they're going in there no matter what. But then also at the same time, not like like using like direct points to also make it more accessible, right? Like it does both at the same time. It doesn't ever reel things back, but it also like gives you the simplified version of it after you kind of get the more complex, more like flowing points together. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I mean by like, it felt like reading an academic piece of like an abstract that doesn't make total sense if you just read the abstract alone but gives you enough of like what this what this paper is going to be about and then it goes on to break things down using the technical terms but also putting it in layman's terms at the same time somehow it's a really fascinating piece of writing i probably could study it to become a better writer like i guess that's part of the purpose of this show is to you know break down things like this and just try and understand how things like this are achieved because this is an achievement I see it as like it's yeah it's a really incredible piece yeah I'm gonna read here um a quick quote that kind of speaks to like what I was saying about how you get these complex points and then you get delivered like the more blunt version of it um Mm -hmm. so just you can get a little bit of the writer's voice here this quote Boomers held up ideals of peace love and good vibes only and expected geriatric millennials zennials to, is that a word? Zennials? To generate the, the, those without also providing this younger generation the material supports boomers had in the 60s and early 70s. From this perspective, the Woodstock 99 organizers seem to foreshadow elites today who serve austerity and expect resilience. But as the documentary shows, despite this ex- expected resilience, what Woodstock 99 organizers got instead was rage, right? So it, it speaks to this, like, generational thing where you had you know the 60s and early 70s being one of the most progressive phases in like american politics where you're getting lots of like support structures built into the economy you're getting lots of like assistance built in and you get people who rise up because of that 
um, who are very progressive at the time of those policies. But then once they get the money, once they get the wealth, they're at the place that they want to be. They start seeing other people trying to get up there as an attack on their position. And they start reeling back and shutting down uh, those social services and those those step stools that they use to get to their own positions. Right. They start shutting them down for other people because that's an attack on them to try to come up to where they're at. Right. Which is so core to what this piece is trying to get across in the dangers of like of looking for profits by using a profit motivated target on a large market base, right? Like this, the large market base being white men and marketing to them in a way that is like, what there's a direct quote in here. Oh, that's off the top of my head. I don't have it, but it says something like, um, it implies that there's maleness and then there's everything else. Like everything else is other, right? Like there's only, Um. there's only male identity. And if it's not male identity, if it's not this very narrow, toxic masculine version of, of male identity, then it is other, right? It is anti and we're anti other, right? We, we are, we are going to provide you this product or this service that caters to you as a white male, because we're the only ones doing it. And everything else, you know, is anti that thing. You're not going to believe this. I pasted the piece wrong. It's actually a 3,000 word piece. <laughs> I pasted it twice by accident. <laughs> okay, no wonder it doesn't feel that <laughs> Yeah, makes sense, right? Yeah. But my point stands from earlier that there's so much more to say. And at the end of this piece, I was like, oh, that's it? Like, obviously, there was a lot that was discussed, but it could have been 6,000 words. And it was believably 6,000 words by the amount that is that is in this piece. So yeah, apologies for saying that for the whole time, but I just made a mistake. That's hilarious. Anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, that that idea of maleness being the center of everything, and anything that isn't appealing to the male being other. Yeah, here it's I, I so found fundamental. I found the quote. I found the quote. Go 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 for it. So it says these products suggest that men aren't included in the market for generically gendered products and want slash ought to use only these products specifically framed for men. From this perspective, there's men and there's the rest of the general public, and the two are entirely separate categories. Yeah, there you go. Cool. Okay, so if there's nothing else to say in this piece, I think, should we go ahead and wrap up? Sure. Yeah, we, we, had, we had capitalism on the ropes today for 55 minutes. I know. <laughs> I know. If capitalism has one hater, it's us. <laughs> um, but yeah, we managed to talk to for the whole podcast. That is amazing. So to recap those pieces, the one we just talked about was what 90s alt-rock radio Woodstock 99 and the Telecom Act have to do with, the, with contemporary right-wing media by Robin James for It's Her Factory. And we started out with musicians like me can no longer afford to tour. Live music won't survive unless the industry changes by Rody Pemberton for Toronto Life. Brandon, talk to the writers. Writers or readers of writers. If you have a indie writer you're following, if you write some of your own stuff, uh, send us your stuff. Send us their stuff. We like to share our platform here at In Search of Sauce. Um, you know, part of what we do, we just really want to give flowers, give credit to the great writers who are out there like producing this material that we can have such rich conversations about. Um, and as writers ourselves, we 
very much are aware of how sometimes it seems very hard to penetrate the zeitgeists. It's hard to get your stuff out there. It's hard to make money getting your stuff out there. Um, so we would love to continue to platform indie publications, small writers, stuff that's not getting enough shine, not getting enough flowers. Uh, send it to us. We will check it out. We may feature it on the podcast. And yeah, yeah. Shout out, shout out you if you're you're still doing it. Keep trucking. Hundred percent. It's tough out here. It's really tough. Um, and that might just be it for the feed for the rest of 2022, as we oh, tend to yeah, take a right. December hiatus, um, because in the UK, it's simply too cold to record a podcast in December and we cannot put the heating Absolutely. up. Absolutely. So, <laughs> Outrageous. Um, so that, I know it's insane, but, um, yeah, if we survive <laughs> the month, we'll see you in January. If not, you know what happened. Um, anyway we'll start being dark for this episode but yeah thank you for everyone who's listened this year um we love doing this thing you might have noticed that on central source it's the website itself things are a bit slower but this has kept going the whole time because we love spending time with each other and we love Aww. an outlet just to to talk about these things i know i'm getting sentimental Aww. you know it's the holidays it's thanksgiving right for you lot <laughs> i'm giving true yeah to yeah next central week source. <laughs> um but yeah um yeah, just thank you to everyone for that's been listening for the whole year. Uh, be great if you could talk to us on Twitter, keep the conversation going, get some reviews in, get some ratings in. We would really, really appreciate that. Uh, but yeah, with that being said, we'll see you next year. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you. This episode of Such Source featured smart asses Ryan Gore and Brandon Hill at Central Source Creative Collective. The episode is edited by me, research intern, Charlie Taylor of the Fifth Element Podcast Network. Music for the show is flushed up by Basti, his chill music for the bit's use. This has been a Central Source Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Next to Basti, chill music, Central Source Fifth Element, and content cover the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next year as we continue our search for Source.